Well, good morning. Thank you, Christy. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Decisions. We make decisions every day. Some of them of great consequence and some ah, really not all that important. You had to make the decision whether to get up this morning. Make the decision about whether you were going to attend church this morning. Someone gave me this little quote this morning, and I'd read it before, but it has a little bit of a different twist. A couple was enjoying a Sunday morning breakfast when the wife went to put on her church clothes. When she returned, the husband was still in his pajamas. Aren't you going to church today, she said. No. I'm not going to church this morning. In fact, I'm not going back to church at all. What do you mean? We've always attended church. He says, well, there are people there who don't like me, and frankly, there are people at the church I don't like either, and uh, so I'm not going anymore. He said, give me two good reasons why I should go. He said, well, number one, you're 52 years old. Number two, you're the pastor. (laughs) I feel that way myself sometimes. Take your Bibles and look at Acts chapter 24, if you would, please. This morning, let me give you what the prophet Joel says about life. He says in Joel chapter 3 and verse 14, multitudes, multitudes... In the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Some of you might be like the the central character in the story that we're going to examine today. You're in the valley of decision. You are in the place that you need to make some decision or maybe some decisions, plural, that may affect how you live the rest of your life. So that's the case I'd ask you to listen well of the story of Felix and the disastrous decision that he makes. Now, there are some things that men do better than women. Now, that sounds rather chauvinistic, doesn't it? But don't stop listening yet. One of the things that men do better than women is procrastination. We tend to put things off. Men tend to think anything worth doing is worth doing tomorrow. I'm never fully satisfied unless I've got about 14 projects going at the same time, never bringing anything to completion. But the truth is that putting off things often brings its own set of problems. I read a story a long time ago about a farm boy who accidentally overturned his wagon load of corn in the road. The farmer who lived nearby came to investigate what had happened. He said, hey, Willis, why don't you forget your troubles for a spell and come on in and have dinner with us. Then I'll help you get your wagon turned right side up again. The boy said, well, that's mighty nice of you, but, you know, I really don't think Paul would like that. He said, oh, come on, son, the, it'll be okay. And so finally, the boy agreed, and he says, but Paul's not going to like it. 
After a hearty dinner, Willis thanks his host. He said, well, I feel a lot better now, but I just know Paul is going to be really upset. We said, don't be foolish. By the way, where is he? Under the wagon. (laughs) Some decisions have more consequences than others. I want you to note with me three things about the text today. First of all, the accusation. After leaving Jerusalem under heavy armed guard, Paul is escorted to Caesarea where he is to be arraigned before Antonius Felix, the governor of the province. Roman law was a little bit different than what you and I know. It followed an accusatory model rather than an inquisitional model. The the burden of proof lay on the accuser who made his case, after which the accused would make his apologia. Apologia is the Greek word which means defense. Verse 1 says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So the Jewish leaders who are against Paul follow him all the way to Caesarea. We're told that the high priest, some of the elders, and a man named Tertullius went up to Caesarea. Now, Tertullius is called an orator. In all likelihood, this indicates a legal advocate or a lawyer. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates the term as attorney, and the NIV translates the term as lawyer. Tertullius did not immediately get right to the charges against Paul, but rather began by flattering the governor. In fact, nearly half of his speech consists of obvious flattery of Felix. In verse 2 we read, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, a lie, and prosperity, a lie, is being brought to this nation by your foresight, We accept it always and in all places most noble, Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your own courtesy a few words from us. What Tortullius was flatteringly referring to is that Felix had a reputation. Felix had a reputation for dealing swiftly and brutally and decisively with any kind of insurrection. And he did so usually by crucifying those who were guilty. Today we would say he was a hanging judge. By a mixture of outright lies and cleverly twisted half-truths, Tertullius begins to accuse Paul in verse number 5 and 6. He says, for we have found this man a plague, a creator of the dissension among all the Jews throughout all the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our laws. Now here's a summary of the charges that have been brought against Paul. First of all, that he was a political menace, that he was at least in the eyes of the Jewish leadership a real pest. In fact, they used the word 
that Paul is like a plague that he was spreading treason, just like he was a plague bringing on an epidemic. He stirred up unrest, he says, among all the Jews throughout all of the Roman world. Secondly, he says he's a religious heretic, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, his choice of words here are loaded with strong negative connotations. He called Paul a ringleader, meant to make Paul appear subversive. And he refers to Christianity as a sect, which would be similar to you and I referring to someone as being involved in a cult. And he uses the term Nazarene purposefully avoiding the use of Jesus' name. And then third, he says, he is charged with having tried desecrate the temple. This is a reference to the allegation that he had tried to bring Trophimus, a Gentile, into the part of the temple reserved for the Israelites. He went on to claim that Paul had been judged properly by their law and that the Roman commander had feared and kept them from carrying out the law and that he had by force snatched Paul out of their hands. Now, this is so patently false as to be ludicrous. The fact was that Paul was mobbed with the intent to kill him right there in the temple when the Roman commander intervened to save his life. Now, Paul's apology. Now, again, the word Apology is from the word apologia, and it means defense. Paul makes his defense. When the governor indicated that Paul might speak, Paul addressed the governor with courtesy, but without the insincere flattery that Tertullius has used. And Paul's defense here is recorded in verses 10 through 21. In every circumstance, Paul Look for an opportunity to share about Jesus, and that's what he does here. Let me summarize this for you without looking at each verse. First of all, to the charge of being a troublemaker, he says, I'm not guilty. Paul's argument was that he had only been, it had only been 12 days since he arrived in Jerusalem. He had been in prison in Caesarea for five of those days. He had spent one day in prison in Jerusalem, which only leaves six days, certainly not enough time to stir up a rebellion. Secondly, to the charge of following Christ. He says, of this charge, I'm guilty, and I'm not ashamed to say so publicly. Paul states, beginning in verse 14, that the real charges against him are religious, not political. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And to the charge of desecrating the temple. Paul addresses the charge that he tried to desecrate the temple by simply stating the facts. He said, I came to Jerusalem on a mission of mercy to deliver a gift to those who were suffering. And when this all began, 
when I was accosted in the temple, I was not engaged in any kind of public ministry, but was just there as a worshiper. He further said that the only real charge that could be brought against him was that he said that he believed in the resurrection. And that led to a fight between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Finally, we come to the avoidance. What kind of decision is Felix going to make? Caught between what he knew to be right and the pressure from people who were demanding that he do wrong. What he did was he refused to make a decision. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He says, the real tragedy was not that just that he postponed making a decision about Paul in regard to the Sanhedrin's accusations, but he, that he postponed a far more serious matter of making a decision concerning Christ. Now, first, he made no decision, though he knew the facts. It says in verse 22, And when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, shall come down, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. Even this early in the story, we see that Felix habitually postponed decisions even when he knew what he needed to do. He made the decision not to make a decision, even though his mind was informed with the facts. The text says, having a more accurate knowledge of the way. The King James Version uses the word perfect. It is the word teleos. It is a word that means more complete or more mature. Felix had more than just a passing knowledge of the gospel. Felix could hardly find Paul guilty of any offense against Roman law. And since he was a Roman citizen, he had to at least make the pretense of protecting Paul's rights. He should have released Paul. But by postponing a verdict, he hoped to pacify the Jews and perhaps wrangle a bribe from Paul. But perhaps to salve his conscience a little, he commanded that Paul be given a considerable amount of freedom and that Paul's friends be allowed to minister to him. Now, Paul's imprisonment, much like the imprisonment in many parts of this world today, the prison didn't supply your food. Your family supplied your food if you have any. And if you don't have any family, you're not going to get any food. According to verse 24, after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. We need to stop for a word, I guess, about Felix and Drusilla and who they were. The corruption of his rule became so bad that the emperor Nero, no bastion of morality himself, recalled Felix from the field. 
He would have been executed if his brother had not pleaded with the emperor on his behalf. Drusilla was just 16 years old when Felix stole her away from her first husband and she became his third wife. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And this is her second marriage and she's not yet 20 years old. Unlike Felix, who was a Gentile, Drusilla had been raised as a Jew, although she did not practice her faith. The text says in verse 25 that Paul now reasoned about three things. He reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. He preached pretty boldly. And no doubt this was not what this couple in an illicit relationship wanted to hear. First of all, Paul spoke about righteousness, which had to do with, okay, what are we going to do about yesterday's sin? Paul first preached to them about righteousness, certainly a reference to the justification that can be ours by grace alone, through Christ alone. Back in 1973, Dr. Carl Menninger, one of the world's leading psychiatrists, published a startling book entitled, Whatever Become of Sin? He wrote, it was a word once on everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever heard. It is only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal. Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, even vague guilt feelings, but no one has committed any sins. Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? He pointed out that the very word sin had gradually dropped out of our vocabulary and the word, along with the word, the very notion of sin itself. It is true today that we talk about mistakes, we talk about weaknesses, we talk about inherent, inherited tendencies, talk about faults, we talk about errors, but we don't like to face up to the fact of sin. Next, Paul spoke to this couple who had always followed their own passions, and he spoke to them about self-control. Self-control has to do with dealing with today's temptations. He was obviously speaking to two people who had not exercised self-control. Drusilla in leaving her husband and Felix in seducing her to become his wife. In a time when sin is viewed as lifestyles, addictions, or even disease, the gospel witness needs to find a way to speak meaningfully of responsible, moral self-control. And finally, he emphasized the judgment to come, undoubtedly warning them that they would not escape future divine accountability for their lives. A thought you might consider this morning, Felix was a judge, and when he died, he appeared before the judge, the judge who will not postpone his judgments and who does not 
accept bribes. The three things that Paul spoke about are the very things that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would teach us. In John chapter 16 and verses 8 through 11, he says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you shall see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Second note, he made no decision, though his heart was stirred. The outcome was, in verse 25, it says, And Felix was afraid. And he answered, Go away for now, and when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. I don't know of many words that are sadder or more pathetic than these. Felix said, That's enough for now. You can leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Felix did not say that he never wanted to hear the message of the gospel again. He just made the potentially fatal error of procrastination. Many in our day respond to the gospel in the same way. They, ex- they express their rejection through delay by putting off their decision to commit themselves to Jesus Christ. But it is a rejection all the same. Felix Felix displayed a foolish attitude in his failure to act on what he had heard. He displayed a foolish attitude towards God's word. Felix felt that he could take it or leave it with the demands of the scripture. He also displayed a foolish attitude that conviction that he felt toward his sin. You may remember in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, it says, And truly those times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Truth not acted upon may not always have the same effect. An important principle comes into play when we pass on the invitation of the gospel. Although you may hear the gospel again, it will never have the same effect. Conviction passes over, and when conviction passes over, it leaves a scar. And the next time, you're not as sensitive to the things of God. And although we're told in verse 26 that Felix frequently sent for Paul, it was in the hope that money would be given to him. And although Felix called for Paul and he talked with him often, according to verse 26, there is no evidence that he ever trembled again. That is the danger that men and women face that when they are confronted with the reality of the claims of Christ and they choose to do nothing, their hearts are hardened. Verse 27 gives us the conclusion of the story, but it says, but after two years, Porcus Festus conceded, seceded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Because Felix still wanted to seek favor with the Jews, he left Paul bound, and that's how he left him behind as a prisoner. Now, if Felix is the classic example of what 
not to do in response to the gospel. Then the Philippian jailer that we saw in Acts chapter 16 is a classic example of what to do. So turn to Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 for just a moment. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking them from sleep and seeing the prison door open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light and he ran in. And he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What I want to point out to you is that the phrase, the word that he's used in verse 29 to describe the fear that the Philippian jailer felt is almost identical with the phrase that is used describing Felix. However, instead of delay, the jailer allowed his fear to catapult him into eternal life by saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? One final word. We need to remember that procrastination is not merely something that we have to worry about before we get saved. But we face it anew at every new level of our Christian walk. There is always a next step to be taken. There's a next step in our growth and maturity as a believer. Some obedience that is demanded, some reconciliation that is mandated, some area of a life that is awaiting our commitment to the Lord and the call is before us. Do it and do it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're patient with us when we make the wrong decision, when we try to put off the decision, and in so doing, reject you. Forgive us for those times that we have pushed you aside. If there is one here today that may be hearing your voice for the very first time in the sense of the knowledge of their sin and their need to be saved. I pray that while they feel that tug today, they might feel the need to accept what Jesus has done on the cross for them. Help them to understand that they're sinners just like all the rest of us. They can't save themselves, but they can accept what Jesus has already done for them on the cross of Calvary and paying for their sin. Help them to repent of their sins and turn and ask you to forgive them. For those, Lord, that are here that perhaps there's some decision they need to make in their life, we pray for your wisdom, your guidance, and your direction. Maybe it's a next step in their Christian life. Maybe it's a next step in their growth as a Christian. Whatever it is that you're calling us to this morning, we pray, Lord, for your guidance and direction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with